can with that and make sure that there's plenty of time for you folks to ask questions if you have any. Um, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Rich Arstead. I am the senior archivist here at the Montana Historical Society. I've been here for 14 years. Uh, I was hired in 2001 to be the Lewis and Clark reference historian. Had a great corner office on the second floor, looked out over the Capitol lawn and everything. And in my 14 years here, I've worked my way down into a bunker office in the basement. <laughs> There's one more floor below me, so it's hard to tell them what the next 14 years are going to bring, but maybe I'll get to the sub-basement yet. I, I hope not. Um, but uh, that certainly seems to be the direction I'm moving within the uh, structure of the building. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, tonight's presentation is There's Power in a Union, Unorganizing the Gibraltar, 1878 to 1922. And um, it's a little bit of Jerry Calvert's book, The Gibraltar, which is 1895 to 1920. And as you came in, you came past the museum store, and Rod actually has this on sale for $10. So it's a, that's a good price. It's a bargain, um, that's a bargain price on the book. This is my copy, as you can tell. It's a little dog-eared. I use it quite a bit. Um, great underlinings and so forth. Uh, but tonight's presentation, because the history of organized labor in Montana hasn't been written other than um, Professor Calvert's book, I'm using it and Butte to tell a little bit of a broader story of organized labor and unions in Montana. So Butte is going to be a common thread all the way through it, but I also wanted to introduce folks to the fact that there was union activity going on in Montana in places outside of Butte. Now, that doesn't take anything away from Butte. Um, for being the birthplace of organized labor in Montana, because it certainly is that. It's hallowed ground. It's our city on the hill. It's our Jerusalem of organized labor. It's a town where men, women, and children organized themselves into unions, and they fought and died and bled for the right to belong to unions and organize unions. Um, so again, in summary, because the entire story hasn't been written, um, this is just kind of broad strokes uh, and focusing on some of those areas where we have more detail or there's been more research done on a specific topic. So to kind of set the scene, if we will, um, the period right after the Civil War, we saw a tremendous amount of industrialization in the United States. Um, the expansion of railroads, um, the growth of the steel industry and the associated industries with the steel industry and so forth. Um, and we saw the creation of huge industrial combinations like uh, Rockefeller Standard Oil, uh, J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel and General Electric. And then here in Montana, of course, we had the Anaconda Company um, run by uh, Marcus Daly as well as the, the, uh, the copper interests of William Clark and later Augustus Heinze. And so the company, as it was called in Montana, dominated quite a bit. It dominated politics. It dominated Montana's economy. It was the bedrock of the economy. Uh, and that was the case up into the 1970s. Um, and uh, their interests spread out into mining, into timber, and, of course, newspapers. So they controlled the majority of the industrial jobs, and they controlled the major newspapers in the state as well. So that, that gave them a pretty big uh, stick to wield in the state. Um, the 1870s to 1920s were decades that were marked by uh, what one historian called sullen discontent and sporadic prote protests by workers, gnawing fear by the middle and upper classes, and harsh repression by the authorities. Uh, and uh, so economic surveys at the time indicate that the most recent immigrants uh, to the country received the lowest wage. Um, that hasn't changed a lot. Uh, and uh, American industry played uh, these competing interests off one another. Um, you know, at first it was the Irish, and then you had Italians, and you had Western Europeans, and then you had Eastern Europeans coming in, and so forth. And so, um, as just a quick example of that, the Great Northern liked to hire ethnic-specific section crews. 
So they would have Russians, and then they would have a Japanese crew, and then they would have a Finnish crew. And one of the reasons that they would do that is because they couldn't talk to one another. And if they can't talk to one another, they can organize and talk about, you know, better working conditions and better wages and so forth. So it was actually, it was actually a tactic. Um, it was a way to control wages and to control the workforce. So this is kind of the situation that we see ourselves here in, in Montana in, in the territory in 1878. And uh, I think I'm already a slide behind. I hate that. No, I'm not. I'm good. Yes. Sweet. Here we go. The Gibraltar was a term that was assigned to Butte because it was where unionism was the strongest in the West. It was the Gibraltar. It was like the rock of Gibraltar. It wasn't going anywhere. It would withstand the test of time. And so that's where the, t the term came for that. So how it earned that was in 1878, organized labor was born in Montana. Um, and it happened when the Walker brothers who owned the Alice Mine and A.J. Davis who owned the Lexington Mine in Butte cut the wages of unskilled underground workers from $3.50 a day to $3 a day. Um, the skilled miners, in a show of solidarity, uh, said that they wouldn't stand for that. And so, and they had public sentiment on their side. So the two groups got together and they said, reinstate the wage or we'll go on strike. And it worked. And they thought, wow, we've got something here. So they organized the Butte Working Men's Union on June 13, 1878. And the BWU um, welcomed all workers, regardless of craft. So it didn't matter what you did. You could be a blacksmith. You could be a tinsmith. You could be a miner. You could be an unskilled um, employee in the mines, whatever. It didn't, it didn't make a difference. You could belong to the Butte uh, Working Men's Union. That kind of changed over time as more unions and so forth came into being. But <coughs> for the beginning, that's how, that's kind of how it worked. And that's how organized labor gained a foothold in Montana. Um, as that developed, three major players came onto the scene who would fight for the affection the affections of the Montana workers um, over the next several decades. And we're going to cover those three real quick right now. The first one is the American Federation of Labor. Now, a lot of people will think that the AFL is a union. It's not. It's a federation of labor unions. So essentially what it is and why it was created is it's a large umbrella group that brings all these different craft unions together. And craft union typically meant that you were a skilled laborer, whether you were a carpenter, whether you were a blacksmith or a blacksmith helper like the people in this photograph, whether or not you were a cigar maker like Samuel Gompers, who's also in this image, and so forth. They were skilled labor. These weren't unskilled people. They had a specific skill. And so that's who the American Federation of Labor wanted within this federation. And the idea was to bring all these different craft unions together for political purposes so that they would have a larger voice on the national and state scene for trying to get legislation passed that would support unions and workers. And so that's why they came together. So it's not a union in, in the typical sense um, of the word. And uh, in 1906, they, it was established in 1886. And in 1906, it kind of came out with its, what it called its labor's list of grievances. And um, it, it, interesting enough, that's really not a specific list. I've looked high and low for it, and you find bits and pieces of it. A major component of it, though, at this time, was uh, the eight-hour day. Uh, that's something that a lot of the craft unions were fighting for, uh, was to was to bring down the, the number of work hours from 10 or 12 hours a day to eight hours a day, um, and typically six days a week. So we're looking at a 48-hour work week um, instead of a uh, instead of a 60-hour work week. And their motto became a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. <coughs> and so they grew pretty large, and they, they were the dominant voice and remain the dominant voice in organized labor today. Um, Following closely on their heels 
was the Western Federation of Miners. The Western Federation of Miners um, was uh, founded in Butte, Montana. It was founded in 1893 um, after the Industrial Depression that took place and after the big strikes that took place in the panhandle of Idaho around Kellogg and Wallace and all those little mining communities in there. And what had happened is, is that those, those places were all organized, all had local unions and so forth for those mines, but they were unaffiliated with one another. So the mine owners would simply go in and pick them off one by one until they were essentially eliminated. So the miners decided what they needed to do um, was organize under one union instead of having all these little independents. And so they created the Western Federation of Miners and um, Butte, the Butte Miners Union became local number one. The interesting thing about the Western Federation of Miners is that the first two presidents of the, uh, of the Federation were uh, Butte guys, Butte Union guys. And the Federation in the first couple years, two, three years or so, almost destroyed itself with all the infighting and so forth. So after about four years of, of this infighting and things like that, um, the group as a whole got together, a delegation, and they actually passed a resolution that said that they wouldn't have any more presidents of the Western Federation of Miners from Butte. <laughs> So that kind of calmed things down and, and uh, they got on a little firmer ground and, and, and started to move forward and uh, did some pretty good work when they, were, when they were in Butte. The third one, and I like the, the ribbon um, from Mount Helena for the Miners Union, um, from Local 138. Uh, you don't think too much about them mining Mount Helena, but uh, this is a, an item that we have in the the museum collection. So then the third one kind of set the world on fire, and that was the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, or the Wobblies. And uh, they were organized in Chicago in 1905. And their primary um, worker to organize were unskilled laborers, those folks who worked in the timber industry, um, those folks in the mining industry who weren't uh, skilled laborers. Um, individuals who worked in um, uh, the farming industry as harvest hands and so forth that was seasonal work. Um, some, of the, some of the construction crews and things like that. They were after anybody who wasn't craft oriented um, and was outside of the organizing um, realm of the American Federation of Labor. And uh, these folks were pretty um, pretty radical uh, in, in their rhetoric and so forth. Um, and they, they were not afraid to get in and, and mix things up. They had their greatest success in Montana in the, uh, in the timber industry. Um, and uh, they, they carried out several successful strikes early on uh, against the Summers Lumber Company and uh, the Eureka Lumber Company up in northwest Montana, and then, of course, the Anaconda Company's Lumber Division. So they had some success there um, in Montana, and that kind of set the tone. But they had a strong presence in the state. The interesting thing about it is that all three of them obviously had their own philosophy. Uh, each um, divided their time trying to organize the American worker, grow the labor movement, and so forth, but they also spent as much time fighting one another. Um, and so that created a fair amount of, of chaos, as you can imagine, in the workforce. And, uh, and ultimately, that warfare between the unions would uh, almost destroy organized labor in Butte and in Montana. Uh, and you can see from the timeline that I posted up there some of the things that occurred. You can see that Montana is fairly progressive in its, in its, in its uh, acknowledgement of uh, workers and so forth. Senate Bill 29, Establishing Labor Day, was passed in 1891. Um, 1893 was Cox's Army. We had our version here in Montana. It was called Hogan's Army, where they borrowed a train from Butte and headed east um, in an attempt to get to Washington, D.C. They got as far as Forsyth, Montana. Um, 
and they got rounded up and, and some of them thrown in jail and then they tried doing a flotilla down the Missouri and, and everything. It, it, it's a pretty interesting story. There's a good article in, the, um, in our magazine about it. And then <coughs> you have the American Railway Union strike. And the first place that trains were stopped in that strike was down in Livingston because it was a big division point. So you've got uh, some strike activity going on. Uh, 1901 to 1909, again, the Montana legislature adopts the eight-hour day for metal miners and, and, and men who work in the smelters. That same time, the telephone operators and linemen went on strike. That strike was so long and so costly, it basically broke the bank of the Montana Federation of Labor. Um, you also had several logging and sawmill strikes at the same time. And then the industrial workers of the world uh, started what they called free speech fights. And in 1909, they were in Missoula, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, they call her the rebel girl, um, kind of kicked that off. And what it was was every time they got folks together to discuss the union and so forth, especially if they were out on the street, local ordinance would come, it was, violate, it was a violation of local ordinance, so they would come in and arrest them. And so, okay, if we can't organize out in the street and we can't talk out on the street, we're going to flood the jail. And so that's what they did. So they would have all these loggers come into town, and they would give them copies of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. They'd give them a soapbox. They'd tell them to go stand on this corner and start reading it. And so they'd do it. And then the, the Missoula City Police would come in and arrest them. And she did exactly what she said she was going to do. She packed the Missoula County Jail and basically changed the ordinance so that they could stand on the street corner and talk without getting into trouble and getting arrested. So it was really pretty amazing. From there, it spread to Spokane, and from Spokane to Seattle and, and points uh, south, I think, down into California. So it was fairly effective, and it changed, it changed law, and it changed how folks viewed um, these folks organizing and so forth. It also kind of gave the IWW a stronger reputation as being agitators because you know they're, they're, they're breaking the law in order to change the law. And this was something that they didn't have any problem doing whatsoever. 1914 to 18 was especially contentious. We'll get into that as we get deeper into the, um, into the presentation. And then 1921 to 22, you'll see again the United Mine Workers of America strike in Bear Creek in Red Lodge at the coal mines down there, and then the Anac Anaconda Road. Um, <clears throat> So we're going to jump all the way to 1914, because like I said, some of this story isn't written. And 14 seems a good place to start, because where else but Butte, America, do the miners and the members of the miners' union blow up their own union hall? Um, so what happened was that Butte had been local one of the Western Federation of Miners for a number of years. The rank-and-file members of the union felt that the leadership of the Butte Miners Union had sold out to the company. So during a uh, typical um, Miners Day Union Parade, which was something that they had annually, um, the majority of the Butte Miners uh, didn't participate. They were standing on the sidewalk watching the few march up the street. They did that for a little while, and they, they were heckling those folks who chose to march in the parade, and then they just decided that they were going to bust up the parade, so they did that. Once they busted up the parade, um, they decided that they were going to establish their own union, and uh, they did. Um, they got together and held a vote, and the vote was 6,348 um, to establish a new union and 243 in staying in the Butte Miners Union. So they became the Butte Miner the Butte Mine Workers Union, and they understood that they were in a precarious situation because they didn't like the WFM, the Western Federation of Miners. They wanted out of that. They, they'd been there. They thought the American Federation of Labor was too conservative, and they thought the IWW was too radical. So they decided that they weren't going to affiliate with anybody, and they didn't. <coughs> um, the Western Federation of Miners President Charles Moyer came to Butte and tried to settle the situation. The interesting thing is, is that the leadership of the WFM and the owners of the Anaconda Company chose to blame the IWW for all the problems that were going on. 
um, the Western Federation of Miners wasn't looking internally at themselves to see if they were part of the problem. They, it was just easier to, play, to blame the IWW. So they tried to hold a meeting in the Miners Union Hall to discuss things. It got out of hand on June 23rd, and um, there was some shooting, a couple of deaths, and 26 dynamite charges later, this is what the Butte Miners Hall looked like. Um, they blew it up, they took the union records and so forth. But this is, this is kind of the theme that emerged from that, and this is L.O. Evans, who was an attorney, who was a chief uh, counsel for the Anaconda Company, um, wrote, that our difficulty is not with the real laboring men of Butte, honest working men anxious to continue their labor and support their families, but unsettled, unskilled, unsafe workers. They're not miners. Neither were they real, the real workers. These were the workers that the IWW were trying to, to organize. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the violence continued. On August 3rd, someone dynamited the rustling shack of the Parrot Mine. With the collapse of the Butte Miners Union, the company instituted the rustling card. The rustling card was a card that the miner had to have on file, um, signed by management, saying that they were non-union. They weren't IWW, they weren't AFL, they weren't Federation of Miners. They were, they were non-union, and so they were good to go to work in any of the mines. If you didn't have a rustling card, you couldn't get a job. So it was pretty important. So somebody dynamited the, the rustling shack. As a result of that, Governor Sam Stewart uh, declared Butte and the county in a state of anarchy and sent in the militia and put it under uh, martial law. And this is where the story gets bigger because typically you focus um, primarily on Butte and what happened with the martial law and, and the events happened there. We're going to go up to the, uh, to the High Line. Um, and uh, in some respects, it kind of adds to the claims that the IW was trying to incite the radicals in Butte because that's kind of what they're trying to do here. Um, at the first part of October, Montana newspapers begin publishing these stories uh, about um, an invasion of IWW malcontents along the High Line. They were headed to Butte. Um, newspapers accounts differ on the exact numbers, but approximately 100 uh, IWW members again borrowed a train, this time a Great Northern train, and headed west in an attempt to reach Butte in a show of solidarity and to protest the declaration of martial law. Um, the Great Falls Tribune ran the headline, Hordes of IWW Headed This Way, Four Men Killed. Although information remained spotty, the newspaper article claimed that this army of IWW from North Dakota had committed robbery and destroyed railroad property and threshing machines along their way through the Dakotas um, and into uh, Montana. Um, the Glasgow Courier added to that, uh, stating that they were terrorizing the citizens of towns in western Dakota and eastern Montana. Um, reports circulated that they were breaking into stores and stealing guns and things like that. And uh, the sole purpose, these were, these were what they called harvest wobblies. These were people who worked the harvest. And their sole purpose was to come to Butte in, in protest and in solidarity and support. Uh, they just got a little rambunctious in their attempt. Um, when they got to Culbertson, uh, the entire male population of the town showed up, armed to the teeth and lining both sides of the railroad track. So when the train pulled in, they were told to just keep moving. And so they did. They didn't, they didn't stop in, in, uh, in Culbertson. They got the same treatment when they got to Poplar. However, eight miles up the track, they stopped at a little place called Chelsea, and they got off the train and so forth, and four gunmen tried to break into a tool house that the Great Northern had there, and a gunfight broke out. A couple of people um, were killed, including one civilian, uh, A.J. Giant Valley, who was an uh, engineer for the railroad, and uh, uh, one of the gunmen and a member of the IWW. When that occurred, the Indian police from Poplar uh, deputized 50 uh, special deputies from the Indian Fair, and according to the popular newspaper, because it was the Indian Fair, they were in full regalia, and they rode to Chelsea, surrounded this bunch of wobblies, and arrested them. So it had to have been quite the sight if it worked out just like the newspaper said it did. Um, so what they did was, that was part of Sheridan County at the time, the county attorney arrived along with the sheriff, and um, they held 12 individuals um, as witnesses, 
and they arrested three men and held them on suspicion of murder and took them to Plentywood. Uh, the Great Falls Tribune reported that um, residents in Glasgow were hanging these wobblies in effigy and burning them and so forth. So it was uh, with signs on them saying, wobblies beware. Uh, by the time the news reached Butte and Helena, the newspapers were reporting that this group, it was approximately 100 members of the IWW, was 1,500. It was an invasion, full-scale invasion of Butte, the mining city. So the Butte miner, uh, the newspaper there, boasted that they couldn't wait for them to get there in their show of solidarity because they'd find themselves jailed, and not necessarily in the city jail, but maybe in several of the abandoned mine shafts that were scattered throughout the system. <laughs> The, the, the city, um, because that was the best that they could do. The popular standard uh, claimed that 100 of the individuals were briefly incarcerated concerning the, the shooting, and they only can confirm that 67 were actually members of the IWW. Um, nobody wanted these folks in their town. They wanted to move them out as quickly as they could. So what they did was they locked them in refrigeration cars with enough food and water to get them to the Pacific coast and then <laughs> shot them west and that's how they got rid of the uh, that's how they got rid of the invading army of wobblies um, but as a result of that and events in Butte and the warfare between the Butte Miner, Miner, Mine Workers Union, the Butte Miners Union, the Western Federation of Miners, the IWW, the Anaconda Company used this opportunity to break the union. And that essentially ended the closed shop era in Butte, where you had to be a member of the union in order to get a job in Butte. So that ended that. The company was firmly in control of the situation in Butte from that period in 1914 forward. <coughs> union activity would continue, but it wouldn't have the same power that it had um, before. And again, you know, moving outside of Butte, because the story is larger than just Butte, we're going to go up to northwest Montana and the timber industry. Um, the IWW, as I mentioned earlier, was extremely successful in organizing the loggers in the American West. Um, the loggers were considered unskilled laborers. If you worked in the sawmill, depending on what you did, you could be considered a skilled laborer. And so you could become a member of the American Federation of Labor or something like that. Those individuals who worked in the woods um, falling trees and bucking trees. Um, those individuals who, as you see in this bottom image, um, drove logs down the rivers and so forth, these people were considered unskilled, a dime a dozen. So they really didn't have a right to organize and the company wouldn't recognize it if they organized and so forth. So this is who the industrial workers of the world wanted. Um, these folks were itinerant laborers. Um, they would work part of the year on the railroad, part of the year on the harvest, and logging at this time was a winter activity. You started in um, September or October, and you logged through the winter until spring breakup, they called it. And breakup is when it became too wet and muddy to, to work out into the woods. They still have breakup today that will shut down the woods and so they'll close operations and so forth. <clears throat> so that's kind of the way it worked. It wasn't a, it wasn't a full-time job by any means. But I, it, it's interesting to, to look at some of the reasons why these folks were interested in, in joining a union and why the I, IWW seemed so appealing to them. Camp conditions could be extremely, uh, extremely bad. Um, sometimes these folks were made, um, had to sleep two to a bunk and what they called muzzleloader bunks. So you crawled in and out one end of it. Um, the camp um, cabins were typically bug infested. There were no shower facilities or wash facilities for their clothes or anything like this. So bed bugs, lice, those types of things were rampant in these camps. They were pretty, they were pretty dirty. Um, a, a member of the Forest Service in North Idaho described one of these, uh, one of these bunk houses in the woods. 28 men in one log cabin, 16 by 28, with one door and two windows. A stove occupied the center of the room, and at night, tiers of musty, wet socks and other garments dangled like Monday wash from the ceiling around the stovepipe. What a scramble for socks in the morning. First come, first serve. So if you had the, if you had the best looking pair of socks in the camp, 
you better guard them with your life because the next morning everybody's going to be after your socks. I mean, this, so can you imagine the aroma of this? There's no shower facilities. These guys are working in the woods. They're doing heavy work, so they're sweating. I mean, even in the wintertime, you see photographs of these guys stripped down sometimes to just their britches and, and, and their long handle top because they're, they're working hard, they're sweating. So there's no way to clean the clothes. There's no way to clean themselves. And so pretty, pretty nasty uh, situation. The one redeeming quality for a camp, um, if there was a redeeming quality, was the cook. If you had a good cook, you could keep men working. If you had a, if you had a lousy cook and lousy beds, you were constantly hiring um, because the men kind of followed their stomachs when they were working. So it's kind of an interesting scenario. And again, these were the folks that the IWW paid special attention to um, starting about 1914 and forward. <coughs> they had struck the Eureka Lumber Company in 1909 and had some success there. And the manager at that time, Charles Wheel, uh, he managed the Eureka Lumber Company. He was also a member of the Montana legislature. Uh, was very proactive in his approach to what he was going to do about the IWW in the future. Uh, he hired the Teal Detective Agency out of Spokane, Washington. It was kind of a rival of the Pinkertons at the time. He hired them to spy on the IWW in the logging camps and so forth and send him reports. And um, had basically an operator, an operative circulating amongst the loggers before they went to work just to kind of take their temperature and see how they felt about the, the IWW and what everybody assumed was going to be a strike in 1917. And so there's these great um, reports from this undercover operative uh, in, the, in the collection downstairs that are a lot of fun to, a lot of fun to read. And the Anaconda Company did the same thing. They hired Pinkertons for their Bitterroot operations to infiltrate the camps and make sure that everything was operational and, and things worked well. Uh, one of the things that um, the operative told him was that the, the, minor, or the loggers were going to strike for $4.50 a day. Um, and this was typically, they weren't asking for an eight-hour day at this time. That was still a 10 or 12-hour day. Um, they also realized, or they also found out that they wouldn't strike until after they had this convention in Spokane, and that was in the first part of March, where the Lumber Workers Industrial Union Number 500 was established. Um, <clears throat> as soon as that was done, IWW uh, organizers came into Montana, into the Eureka area, down into Three Forks, to meet those men that were showing up for the big annual spring river drives. So what they would do is they would cut the logs during the winter months. They would put them on roll what they called rollaways along the edges of these larger streams and rivers. And they would wait for the spring rise when the snow started to melt and so forth. And when the water came up, they'd knock the rollaway out, the logs would go into the river, and the river drivers would drive the logs down the river to the sawmill. Um, they could do this if they didn't have a railroad logging operation, and of course this was before there were logging trucks and so forth. So this was the most expedient way for them to get logs to, to the camp. Um, before, well, during the process of organizing uh, the union for the loggers, this operative, operative that I was telling you about was sending reports to Wheel, and Charles Wheel was sending them to Sam Stewart. So before the strike even occurred, um, Sam Stewart received the following that were going to be the demands for the strikers. They wanted sanitary uh, sleeping quarters uh, with single spring beds and clean bedding uh, and also no top bunk uh, and no bunk houses to accommodate more than 12 men. The steel bunks and so forth were to combat the, uh, the bed bugs and, and things like that. The companies were to provide reading tables, shower baths, and extra dry rooms convenient to the bunkhouses, and they wanted wholesome food served on porcelain dishes with sufficient help to keep same in good shape and not crowded at the tables. I like that. You want lots of elbow room to eat. These are big husky loggers. Um, a minimum wage, no work on Sundays, and um, the river drivers were to draw a minimum wage of uh, $5 a day for board and room. And um, so that's what they were going to ask for. And the, these weren't things that were specific to the organizing that was going on in Montana. 
Uh, they had organizers here in western Montana, but they also had organizers in the panhandle of Idaho and um, eastern Washington, western Washington, and Oregon, and so forth. So it was pretty, pretty big. To counter that, Montana established an industrial protective association of, of sawmill owners, and they met in Eureka and decided that they were going to resist this um, with uh, everything that they had. Uh, one helpful individual also um, provided some advice to the Eureka Lumber Company for helping to contain these radical strikers. Um, and that was the construction of a bullpen. And a bullpen was an outside kind of jail facility. And uh, the description is, uh, should have three strands of barbed wire on the top and only marginal shelter from the elements. Also located near a fire hydrant so that a hose could be attached and be ready in short notice in case it was necessary to quiet the inmates. There's nothing that takes the tuck out of these fellows more than a good-sized stream of cold water. So as the loggers were preparing to go on strike, the companies were preparing to meet them uh, on the picket line. And um, they were also working the political scenes. The political power at that time belonged to the company owners and so forth. Like I said, Charles Hoyle was a member of the Montana legislature, so he knew the governor. Um, the owner of the company, a gentleman named P.L. Howe out of Minnesota, was spending a considerable amount of time writing Montana's two U.S. senators, saying, hey, we're going to have a situation here pretty soon, and we're going to need federal assistance on this, and so we're going to need your help. He also started recruiting strike breakers at that time. And again, strike hasn't even been called yet. So you can see things are starting to line up. The thing that was going to complicate this for everybody, and particularly for the union, unions as a whole, as well as the IWW and the loggers, was World War I. The United States hadn't gotten into the war yet. Um, that changed on April 6, 1917, when Woodrow Wilson asked for a declaration of war against Germany and its allies. And of course, it passed through Congress, and the United States found itself at war, um, a war that had been going on since 1914. Six days later, 34 men from Dam 1 and 30 men from Camp 2 of the Eureka Lumber Company walked out on strike. Um, they figured that if the companies were going to be making more money because of the war effort and so forth, then they needed to see an increase in, in wages. And so, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the strike was on. And this is an actual strike flyer um, from that time period. It's in the collections here at the Historical Society. Uh, the Eureka Journal the newspaper quickly came out against um, the IWW. And again, it was claimed that there was a small radical element within the workforce that was stirring up problems. It wasn't the, the loyal employee. It was, it was these radicals led by the IWW. Um, the other thing that kind of condemned the Wobblies um, were the fact that they insisted that they, their sole allegiance was to the working class. They didn't really have any national loyalty. They also, when they had their founding convention in Spokane, had introduced a resolution that said if the United States declared war on Germany, all the members of the IWW would refuse to sign up for the draft. So everybody's waiting for these guys to unleash um, essentially terrorism in, in the woods of uh, western Montana as uh, the United States gets into war. And lumber was considered a, a, uh, an essential wartime material, uh, especially spruce and some of the lighter woods, uh, white pine and, and so forth, that was used in the construction of some ships. It was also used in the construction of airplanes. This is a time when there was very little metal in airplanes. It was mostly wood and fabric frame. And so the timber industry was vital um, to the war effort. And so the United States put a full bore effort into trying to circumvent uh, this sh strike. You know, patriotic fervor gripped the nation, and this kind of fed a growing paranoia of these subversive elements within the United States. And from the press and the pulpit, the strikers and the IWW especially were condemned for what they saw is, is starting a revolution during a time of war. So this was being extremely um, disloyal to the United States at the time. And so the Western lumbermen used this against the IWW and used this against the striking loggers, despite the fact 
that they had some very legitimate claims about some of the things that they wanted fixed in the camps, as I, as I described. Um, and James Rowan, who was the secretary for the Lumber Workers Industrial Union 500, you know, made a very valid point. With Lumbermen were beginning to see an increase in timber production because of the war in Europe before the United States got into it. After the United States got into it, the order for uh, lumber increased. And so the companies were raising their prices for what they were charging for lumber and so forth. So why was that considered good for business and, and, and loyal, and the fact that the men were going on strike for an increase in wages considered disloyal? So it was a fairly decent argument on his part. Um, unfortunately, there were very few individuals who were willing to, uh, to uh, listen to it. Uh, the other thing that you have to keep in mind at this time is that about a quarter of the population of Montana at this point was foreign-born. Um, and if you included those folks who had one or two foreign-born parents, there, was, there, was, there, were, there weren't a lot of what you would call native um, or natural citizens in, in, in Montana at the time. So a lot of the agitation that was going on, a lot of the labor organizing and, and things like that that were going on were being blamed on these foreign workers. And these workers were from everywhere. So consider the fact, you're Finnish. The Finns spent a lot of time working in the mines, working in the timber industry and so forth. The Finns didn't want to see the United States go into the war on the side of Great Britain and Russia because they didn't like Russia. The Irish didn't want to see the United States go to war in, on the side of Great Britain because they didn't like Great Britain. The German immigrants in the United States didn't want to see the United States go to war against Germany because they didn't think Germany had done anything wrong. So you have all these kind of different factions within um, the workforce that are, that are doing their thing as well. And so all of that was kind of used to brand one organization as the major subversive element. And so all that got laid at the doorstep of the IWW. Whether they were guilty of it or not, it was put at their doorstep. And there were plenty of things that they did that they were, you know, outside the boundaries of law and, and, and order and so forth. But this kind of stuff was put directly on their doorstep, and they saw it as a way to, to break the strike. Um, the interesting thing is that after the declaration of war and the strike, the very first place that federal troops are posted in the United States to suppress a strike was Eureka, Montana, up in the northwest corner of Montana. You know, everybody thinks Butte because Butte is such a big story, especially during World War I, but it, it's not. It's Eureka, Montana. They put federal troops in Eureka, Montana to close down the strike. And the strikers went out on April 12th, and by April 22, there were 150 troops in Eureka. And they would just make their way down the Kootenai River from Eureka to Libby to Troy and into the panhandle of Idaho and further and points west from there. <coughs> um, the company, of course, used the, the arrival of the troops as leverage against the workers. Nobody wants to go up against the federal government. Nobody wants to go up against the US, United States Army. These guys are just loggers. And so they're pretty nervous about this. About the same time, um, 22 strike breakers arrived from Minnesota. These were Chippewas from the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota who were recruited by the owner of the Eureka Lumber Company. They weren't told, though, that they were being sent to an area that was under strike. So when they got to Eureka and got off the train and realized the situation, they said, we're not going to work. We're not going to get in the middle of this. We're not going to do this. And so, again, the company kind of had the upper hand on this, and Charles Wheel had a discussion with them and said, fine, if you don't want to work, then you can go back to Minnesota. But we're not going to pay your train fare. We're not going to let you get on a train. You're going to have to walk out through the strikers. Well, <laughs> that kind of traps them in the middle, um, and there wasn't much that they could do, that, do about that. The local merchants also got into it, and about that time they started closing off credit and so forth to the, the men that were out on strike and telling them that they had to go back to work. And again, a lot of this is generated because of the war um, and the fact that they wanted folks to be loyal. So um, the strike in Eureka lasted a, a total of 13 days, um, but it kind of ignited a fire from there that would last for several months and, and, and a couple of years. Um, about half of the strikers returned to work and accepted $4.50 a day as a pay. 
not everybody went back to work. And over time, the strike just got bigger as uh, it, began to, it began to move along. So at this point, we're going to move back to Butte. And I think maybe I went too soon. So back to Butte. Um, on uh, June, in June of 1917, uh, 11,603 Butte men uh, registered for the draft. Um, that sounded pretty good, but not everybody, I mean, they, they tried to create it like a holiday, you know, the red, white, and blue bunting, flags, and things like that. And a momentous event occurred in Butte on the draft registration day. It had never happened before in the history of Butte, and it has never happened since. You want to guess what it was? They closed the bars. They closed the bars. <laughs> How impossible is that? Every saloon in town shut down. Of course, there probably was plenty of whiskey on the street, so there was really no reason to have the saloon. Um, the thing that they didn't talk about a whole lot, you see a little bit about it in the paper, was the fact that there were these flyers going around urging men not to register for the draft. Now, the company was, the Anaconda Company was saying that that was the IWW agitators, the labor agitators, and so forth. But stop and think again about the population of Butte population of Butte is predominantly Irish at this point. And again, the Irish don't want to go to war on the side of Great Britain. Um, the Irish uh, uprising was in 1916 and was put, put down pretty harshly. And so I, the Irish uh, were really not very excited about, the, uh, exci excited about that. And so there were several protests and arrests over the course of the day. But primarily, it was a patriotic event. And the mine operators, like the lumbermen, were realizing that they were going to start making some pretty good profits. I mean, copper was going to be, copper, zinc, those types of things were going to be big um, during the war. And so they started pressing the men to work harder. Let's get the rock in the box. We've got to get the rock in the box because that's a patriotic thing to do. If you're not going to go serve in the military, then you're down in the mine and you're getting the rock in the box. Um, and interestingly enough, the spark that kind of set things off for Butte was an attempt to make the mine safer. Uh, and so they were trying to lower a, a line into the Granite Mountain mine for lighting system, and it got hung up in the shaft. A spark happened, started a fire, and it killed uh, 168 men um, in Butte on June 8th. And that was kind of the thing that exploded Butte. Butte had had some labor problems, obviously. 1914 was a big year and so forth. Things had kind of quieted down a little bit, but the miners were seeing the same thing that the loggers were. Production was going up because of the war. They were being urged to get more and more ore out of the mines and so forth. The mine operators were making more money, but the men's wages were staying the same. And so, uh, as a result of the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Fire, uh, they, the miners decided to create another union, and it was called the Metal Mine Workers Union. And again, they understood that they had to be very careful who they affiliated with. So they held the I AFL um, at arm's length. They held the IWW at arm's length. They refused to pass out any of their literature or anything like that. Same way with the Socialist Party and all those things that were involved with the labor movement. They didn't want to have anything to do with it so that they would avoid being branded as, as disloyal to, uh, to the United States. Their demands were pretty simple. They wanted recognition of the Metal Mine Workers Union you know, in the Butte District. They wanted the um, end of the wrestling card system and reinstatement of all the blacklisted miners. They wanted $6 per day minimum wage for all men working underground and an increase in wages for the surface men in proportion to what the miners would receive themselves. Um, <clears throat> mine inspections by a joint committee of union members and the company. And they wanted bulkheads that could be guarded. Uh, they, I got, I got, okay, let me get the quote right. Um, the other demand was that all bulkheads must be guarded for the safety of the miners by having mine holes, manholes built in to the concrete bulkheads. And that's how some of the miners survived during the fire, is that they would construct these bulkheads to keep out the poison um, gas and smoke that was created by the fire. So this was, this was a safety issue as well. So they organized and struck. And it was amazing how quickly the newspapers shifted gears 
So the guys that were going down in the mines to rescue those that were trapped um, within just a few days became disloyal and uh, labor agitators because they created this union. And so the company came out in full, in full force against them. As a matter of fact, all the mining companies um, banded together and issued a statement. This element forms but a small portion of our population, but it is attempting to pursue its usual vicious methods of intimidation and violence. Their attempts to riot on registration day plainly indicate their motives. Neither this element nor any organization made or controlled by it will receive any consideration or recognition by the mine operators in Butte. William Clark took that a bit further and said that he would rather flood his mines than recognize the miners' union or negotiate with what he called the, and I'm not even going to be able to say the word today, the anarchist element in control of the so-called miners' union. So, as in 1914, you see the miners being branded as, as traitors um, and uh, not loyal workers. Uh, the metal mine workers, in an attempt to kind of negotiate through this process, actually approached Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin and asked if she would mediate between them and the mine owners. That's something that the miners, uh, the mine operators, did not want at all. So they, they managed to hold her at arm's length so that she wouldn't get involved in that. Um, but there is some correspondence between the Metal Mine Workers Union and Jeanette Rankin about having her mediate the uh, situation there. So you have Butte blow up. You have the mine workers strike bulletins and so forth. And the, the word strike became common. The word general strike became very common. Butte is shut down because of the labor troubles there. The beginning of June 1917, the IWW's uh, Lumber Workers Industrial Union 500 calls a general strike that shuts down the entire Pacific Northwest. So Western Montana, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon shuts the timber industry down. So you can imagine the fear that's going through the company owners at the time, the federal government at the time, because again, lumber is, a, is an essential wartime material and so forth, and here they have, they've shut the entire industry down in the West. Um, pretty heady stuff. Uh, the lumber company employers claim that 75% of the men that were out on strike weren't working because of intimidation um, and that uh, as such they needed to break the union in order to make sure that the loyal workers could get back on the job and in mid-July federal troops were stationed not only in Montana but Arizona, Washington and Oregon uh, in mining and timber districts in those areas. Um, the, the situation was uh, the situation was uh, Pretty, pretty tense. The IWW did what it could to control its own members. Uh, they submitted the following advice to those men who were out on strike, um, stating, remember fellow workers, we do not believe in long drawn out strikes. We do not believe in violence in strikes. We do not believe in booze. Stay and picket, let each man do his duty. A couple of these things fly in the face of the typical uh, IWW propaganda because they did preach violence. They preached sabotage and so forth. And they were pretty ready, they were pretty quick to talk about using dynamite to get what they wanted. These, these statements would come back um, to haunt them. As we moved into August, literally hobbling into Butte is Frank Little. Frank Little was here in 1909 during the free speech fight in Missoula. Uh, he came in 1917 up from Arizona where the mine operators in the Bisbee area had basically deported all the striking miners and their families out of the community of Bisbee and dumped them in the desert. Frank Little was down there. Um, when he was down there at that time, um, he was pretty severely beaten by some company guards and his ankle was busted uh, at the same time. So when I say he hobbled into town, he literally hobbled into Butte. And his sole purpose for coming to Butte was in an attempt to get the miners' union to affiliate itself with the IWW. Probably not the smartest move in the world, but that's what he attempted to do. Um, he had a piece published in Solidarity, which was the IWW's uh, newspaper, that stated, an injury to one is an injury to all. 
So altogether, you diggers and muckers, boost for the organization that's going to get you the things that will really make life worth living. Force the bosses off your backs, put them to work down in the hole with the producers, hand them their muck sticks, and make them earn a living wage for a change. The same day, the Anaconda Company ran in its newspaper the following editorial. The industrial workers of the world has arrayed itself in open rebellion to our country and our government. It is against America, it is against the institutions of this land, it is against law and order and in favor of anarchy. The leaders, by their acts and utterances, have placed themselves outside consideration as American citizens. As enemies of this country, they should be given consideration and treatment to which enemies are entitled and no more. So, war had definitely been de uh, declared on the home front. Frank Little would be one of the first casualties of that war. Um, in the wee hours of August 1, six armed men entered uh, the boarding house where Little was staying, uh, tied him to the bumper of a car and drug him to a nearby railroad trestle and lynched him. Um, they hung a sign on him that said, others take notice first and last warning 3777. Of course, this is the, the sign and symbol of the Montana vigilantes. On the bottom of the sign, there was a series of initials LDCSSWT with the L circled. Um, they assumed that the letters were the first letter of the name of those people who were leading the strike activity, and the L, of course, was Frank Little. The coroner's report says that he died of strangulation. Um, it, uh, yeah. Um, it doesn't go into detail at all about the physical abuse his body took being drugged behind the car. If you take a look at his knees, um, and the rest of his body, he's in pretty, pretty bad shape. Um, and it did state that we condemn in the strongest terms the parties guilty of this awful crime. Uh, there was no shortage of condemnation for what happened to Little. Governor Stewart's office received a flood of telegrams and communications that, uh, declared, uh, that condemned what happened and the inhuman and, and diabolical action and so forth. And suggested that Stewart conduct a rigid investigation. Um, despite the telegrams and the letters and the news headlines uh, calling for swift action, Little's murder was never solved. So it's still an unsolved murder. Um, this, the citizens of Butte had received the warning um, pretty clearly about what was going to happen if you were going to agitate like Frank Little that didn't stop 6,800 Butte residents from uh, marching in the funeral procession for Frank Little um, as his body was carried to Mountain View Cemetery and interred. Uh, union members in Butte and elsewhere in Montana held their kind of collective breath waiting for the time bomb to explode. Um, what was the federal government going to do next? What were the owners, the company owners going to do next? Um, as this was unfolding and things were getting progressively worse, there were attempts to find out exactly what the major issues were. Uh, Governor Stewart uh, had his head of the Department of Agriculture, Labor, and Industry, um, his first name is Charles Swindlehurst, conduct an investigation into what was going on and causing the strikes. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson did the same thing with the Federal Commission to find out what was going on. Both the state and federal investigating teams came up with the same um, report. The conditions that the miners and strikers uh, identified existed and they needed to be changed. So there wasn't a problem with the workers. As far as they could see, the problem was the subversive element that was within the working class. That was the union. So, conclusion, what do we do? We kill the union. And that's what they did. They went after the IWW full force and any other labor union that was operating at the time. The American Federation of Labor at this time really um, pulled in its horns and limited the activities that it was doing um, just to kind of stay out of the line of fire. The Western Federation of Miners at this time is almost non-existent. They're kind of um, in the beginning phases of reinventing themselves. So that left the IWW as the primary target and to help root out these individuals, um, Montana created the Con Council of Defense um, for each county. These folks would get together and they would spy out on their neighbors and see who was buying enough um, 
war bonds and contributing to the Red Cross. And if you weren't, you could actually be called out in kind of a public trial and shamed a bit in order to contribute more to the, to the cause. Um, so it was pretty contentious. In August, late August, early September of 1917, the federal government got into it wholeheartedly and began raiding IWW halls across the United States and arresting the leadership. The best way to kill the movement was to cut the head off of the snake. And so they arrested all the leaders that they could. James Rowan, who was working out of Spokane with the loggers, was arrested and thrown in jail. Um, William Haywood, who was the president of the IWW at the time, it was in Chicago, was arrested and thrown in jail. They arrested all the leadership that they could get their hands on. And the following year, they put them on trial for sedition and treason. And uh, the majority of them were convicted and sentenced to Leavenworth. The nice thing is, is that the historic Leavenworth prison has some of their records online, so you can actually go in and see these guys' prison photos and so forth and find out exactly when they were released from prison. And the sentences were pretty hefty. Those on the lower end received five, maybe 10 years. Those like James Rowan and so forth were sentenced to 25 years in, in the federal penitentiary. Didn't mean that they necessarily served that time, but they were sentenced to that. Big Bill Haywood, who'd, who'd um, come up through the Western Federation of Miners and then became the head of the IWW, was out on his own recognizance after being convicted and instead of going to prison, escaped to Russia and died in Russia in exile, um, which uh, tarnished his reputation pretty good because the rest of them stuck it out and did their prison terms and so forth in the hopes of getting out and bringing the IWW back together. <coughs> but it was pretty clear that this Gibraltar of organized labor in Montana was pretty much done. Um, there was kind of one last gasp in 1920. There was a small metal mine workers industrial union number 1800 that was part of the IWW. Um, they went out on strike. Uh, Governor Stewart again um, ordered troops into Butte to help suppress it. Uh, the county sheriff for Silver Bowl County, John Rourke, deputized uh, extra deputies, and those included the guards and, and thugs that the, uh, the Anaconda Company, well, I should say thugs, the special guards that the Anaconda Company had on their payroll, and, um, and uh, deputized them to protect mine property. So um, in uh, the spring of 1920, three to 400 miners gathered outside of the Never Sweat Mine and um, faced off with 40 to 50 deputized guards. And this is what they call the Anaconda Road. And it was just kind of a standoff. Um, nobody was really doing anything at the time. And then somebody shouted, go get them, boys. Give the sons of bitches hell. And the deputies started uh, shooting into the crowd of miners. As soon as they started pulling their guns and started shooting, most of the miners turned and ran. So the individuals that were killed um, during that were primarily uh, shot in the back. One of them was a young Irish miner, uh, 25 years old. His name was Tom Manning. Uh, he'd been a resident of Butte for three years. Uh, he was saving his money so that he could buy passage for his wife and son to join him in Butte. Uh, he was shot in the back and died four days later of uh, peritonitis. The coroner's request, or the coroner's report states, in the matter of the inquest held in Silver Bowl County, from April 29 to May 13, we the jurors find the following verdict, that Thomas Manning died on April 25, 1920 at St. James Hospital in Butte from the effects of a wound caused by a 32 caliber bullet fired from a pistol in the hands of some person to this jury unknown. And like Frank Little's murder, it remained unsolved. Soldiers arrived a few days later and the IWW pulled their pickets and, and uh, off the streets and went back to work and the strike was broken. Um, organized labor in Montana was pretty much broken at that time too. Uh, and um, so you kind of saw, you saw the, the rise and fall of organized labor in Butte between 1878 and 1920. The interesting thing is that that's not really the end of the story. Um, labor's um, in tough shape. It's almost completely wiped out for sure, but it's, it's not completely gone. And in 14 years, a gentleman would be elected to president of the United States promising a new deal. Um, along with him 
would be the appointment of the first woman um, to the cabinet of the president as the head of the U.S. Department of Labor. She would play an integral role in the resurrection of organized labor in the country as a whole. Um, as a young lady, she had stood on the streets in New York in 1911 and watched workers die in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And so she was very progressive when it came to workers and the needs of workers as they moved um, through the passage of time. So with the election of Roosevelt, the appointment of Francis Perkins, and the passage of a congressional act, um, this kind of resuscitated the labor movement. And so from the rubble of the teens and 20s, Montana and the rest of the nation would begin to, the workers would begin to rebuild organized labor in Montana, and it would have a uh, new life breathed into it. But that's part two of the story. So you got to come back in April for the rest of it. <laughs>